0: Before I begin the, the message this morning, I just want to take a moment and highlight. You probably saw the, the table with all the, the boxes, two boxes on it. I'm to highlight this just for a second. It's a wonderful ministry that we've been a part of for many years. And it's been a great response this year. It's called Operation Christmas Child. And these boxes are packed and sent to families all across the world, needy families to children. And in fact, Kevin Irick, who's our, one of our coordinators, told me that uh, 13 million boxes go out every year, and they, uh, they expect that anywhere from 7 to 10 individuals are impacted through these boxes. You know, the family of the children and friends, things like that. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, you were blessed because there was a young woman who was with us who grew up in, in the former Soviet Union who received one of these boxes in an orphanage and came to faith in Christ and now is going into missions work. And so we, we, that's, just a, that's just one example of how God has used these boxes in this ministry to impact people, especially children, for his, his kingdom. So before I begin the message, I always offer a prayer for uh, these boxes as we send them out. Father, we thank you for um, the people who have brought these boxes, and they have opportunity to do so the rest of the week as well, Father. But we just thank you for uh, the boxes that have been packed, and we just pray that your spirit, as we know, will go before us to prepare these young people to receive these boxes, that they would feel loved, they would feel special and cherished, Uh, that they would feel significant, and that ultimately, Lord, that they would um, find grace and truth and forgiveness and salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. Uh, We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of you will recognize the name Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig was one of the uh, most uh, famous and best baseball players who have ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, just to give you a sense of some of his accomplishments, uh, he hit 493 home runs, had a lifetime batting average of, of .340, uh, was a six-time World Series champion, two-time MVP, and one of the, perhaps what he's best known for, he was known as the Iron Horse because he played in 2,130 consecutive games, a record which is only broken uh, in the past uh, 15, 20 years by Cal Ripken, Jr., and the record probably would have, been, would have been no doubt much longer, maybe unbreakable, except for the fact that when he was 36 years old, he had to retire from baseball because he was diagnosed with ALS, which is commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which ultimately took his life within two years of his diagnosis. Gehrig was, uh, was quite the person, quite the man. He was a, a quiet man, not known as a talker, and yet on July 4th, 1939... He strode into the middle of the infield at Yankee Stadium and he began to speak. He began by thanking the vendors and the the ticket takers and the workers uh, who worked behind the scenes, who rarely got recognized, who didn't get the applause that he and the other players got. And he said they made his job possible. And then he said the words that those of us who know his story always remember when we hear the name Lou Gehrig. He said in front of the microphone, Today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Why do we remember those words? Well, maybe because in part we're moved by Gehrig's uh, gratitude it would have been understandable if he would have become bitter or angry or depressed because of his diagnosis. Maybe we remember his words because of the dignity and the grace and the class that he exhibited in facing this horrible scenario. Maybe you remember his words because we've seen the old newsreel shots, the the old the footage, the film footage, where he stands at the microphone and you can see as he speaks these words his body is, is hunched over and it's already beginning to break down, weighed down by this horrible disease. And we sense the character of the man. Because against all reason he is grateful, truly grateful. In our text today that Melissa read just a minute ago, the Apostle Luke tells us a story about gratitude. John Ortberg, who's a pastor pastor and author, defines gratitude as this. He says, Gratitude is a gift that God gives us so that we can be blessed by all his other gifts. He says, Gratitude is a gift that functions in much the same way as our taste buds function when they help us enjoy a good meal. I mean, I mean, think about that. I mean, we can, we can eat food. We can benefit from its nutri- nutrients and nutrition and all that. But if we don't have taste buds, it's, it's a much different experience. Something is, is lost. He says that truth is, without gratitude, you and I would experience our lives quite differently. If we didn't have gratitude in our lives, we'd be more inclined to envy other people and compare to what they have and we want what they have. We'd be more likely to be dissatisfied with every little thing, more likely to, to grumble at the drop of a hat. Without gratitude, we'd take all the good things in our lives for granted, and then we would, we'd want more. So in this story today, we see a, a clear distinction in, in two different responses. One shows gratitude, one does not. And the story begins with Jesus walking down this long road. Uh, he's he's fr- walking from Galilee which is his home area, and he's headed down to Jerusalem. If we had a map up here, we'd just start with Galilee at the top, at the north, and then Samaria would be underneath that, and then underneath that would be Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. So Jesus is walking from Galilee through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. And, and Luke, who was a physician and a historian, begins the story by saying this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border Between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now it might be helpful to have a little bit of background on how lepers were viewed and treated by the Jews of Jesus' day. So to get a little bit of background, listen to this passage from Leviticus 13 which tells us about how lepers were viewed and to be treated. We read, The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, Unclean, unclean! They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Can you imagine? Place yourself in the position of a leper back in Jesus' day. You'd have to live alone. Or maybe you could find some other lepers to hang out with. You couldn't be with your family or your friends. You couldn't go to worship. You couldn't share a meal uh, at your favorite restaurant. You couldn't go to a game. You couldn't give somebody else a hug. You couldn't even extend a handshake. And you had to grow out your hair long, not because you wanted to be like Paul. You had to grow out your hair long to cover your face because of the sores and and the rot and the disfigurement. And if anybody came near you, you had to shout out, Unclean, which sort of became your identity. That's the unclean one, the unclean guy, the unclean gal. Can you imagine the shame and the the loneliness, the depression? Well, if you look at Leviticus 13 a little bit more, you'll see that the only way that a leper could be reinstated into his old life, where he could be with his family and friends again, was if the priest examined them and then determined that the disease was in remission, that the sores had healed up, that they were not contagious at this point, and then they would be declared clean. That was the only hope that you would have of having a normal life again. So back to the story in Luke 17. When Jesus hears his name called, he takes a good look at the men. And it's interesting in that he sizes up this situation and he responds with this. Go, show yourselves to the priest. Which is a little confusing. It must have been confusing to the men a little bit. I mean, usually when we look at scripture, we see Jesus do things like he'll walk up. He'll look in the eyes. He'll put his hand on his shoulder, maybe they'll kneel before him. He, he sees them; He's up close. He's up. He's personal. He'll, he'll pray over them. He'll cast out the demon. He'll, he'll heal their disease and make them walk again. But in this situation, it appears that they're a little bit far off. I mean, Jesus can tell they're lepers. No doubt he could see some of the sores. He could maybe even get a hint of the smell of rotting flesh. But he simply says, go, show yourselves to the priest. Well, the lepers have nothing to lose, right? And so they do what they ask. And as on their, on their way to the priest, after a short distance, they discover that something is changing, that their, their disfigured bodies are being healed, diseased skin is being restored, rotting limbs are functioning, their skin is becoming clear. And they're overjoyed, and they're, and they're overwhelmed, and they laugh, and they leap, and they run back to their families towards the village. At least nine of them do. Because Luke tells us that the Samaritan stops. And we read this. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then Luke adds a a telling phrase. He anticipates the surprise in the reader. Luke says, And he was a Samaritan. Now, many of us have heard this story a number of times. And the danger is that sometimes with familiarity comes a certain lack of appreciation or impact for what's going on. So it might be helpful to think of it this way. Suppose this story happened in the 21st century. Uh, Let's say uh, Jesus is walking through the middle of Kansas with his disciples. But instead of nine Jewish men and one Samaritan, you have nine evangelical Christians, probably all white, and one other could be a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, or a Buddhist. And instead of leprosy, the ten are all terminal cancer patients in a hospice home. They can't go home. They can never be with their family in the way that it used to be. Life as they know it is over. Their only hope is in Jesus Christ. And they cry out for mercy. And Jesus heals them. All ten of them, including the, you know, the other one. And they're thrilled and they're overjoyed and they leap from their their hospice beds and they rush home to see their families. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? And Jesus is left standing there. Wouldn't you be surprised if the only one, the other one, the Muslim, the Jew, the Buddhist, the Hindu, was the only one who came back and thanked Jesus? Verse 15 Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Luke tells us that the Samaritan is kneeling at Jesus' feet, no doubt looking up to Jesus with joy and tears running down his face, humbling himself, giving praise to the one who healed him. And Jesus speaks again, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Ten men are healed. Ten men get their life back. And we expect them to be grateful. That's how the story is supposed to go. But just one turns around. Just one kneels to express gratitude. Nine forget all about Jesus and run away. Only one humbles himself to Jesus. And so we ask the same question Jesus did. Put a different way. Why just one? I mean, it's odd and offensive that only one is grateful, only one appreciates what Jesus had done for them. And yet, is gratitude a default reaction in our world? Is an attitude of gratitude pervasive in our lives and in our culture? I mean, for goodness sakes, we live in the richest country in the history of the world. Is an attitude of gratitude pervasive in our lives? You know, it's kind of a weird thing, but sometimes having too much can lend us to become ungrateful. I mean, we talk a lot about being grateful when we get something we've been wanting or hoping for. But the truth is, if we get everything that we want, it's easy to forget to be grateful. It seems like sometimes we have to experience the possibility of losing something that we love before we understand how grateful we should be every day of our lives. So, are we saying that the threat of loss can make us grateful? Sometimes it seems to work that way. On the other hand, ambition can blind us to the things we ought to be grateful for. I mean, sometimes folks who let ambition drive their lives... Folks who let work become their primary passion may have to be jarred back to reality by tragedy or an unexpected event, a loss of some kind. And then they understand you know, that they've been blessed with something and they're grateful. But they haven't lost it, perhaps, or got it back. I don't know, it's interesting. There are some researchers who've done uh, some studies on gratitude and they've discovered surprised that there are people who tend to be more grateful than others and they've concluded that habitually grateful people have what they call a low threshold of gratitude in other words it doesn't take much for them to be grateful you know so they see a sunset it makes them feel grateful a kid walks down the street a cute kid waves at him smiles at him it warms their heart they feel grateful because they've received a gift that they don't deserve, that they're not entitled to. I want to be like that. I want to have a low threshold of gratitude. To be thankful for the little things, the ordinary, everyday things that are gifts from God. But how can we develop more gratitude in our lives? Is it sort of, some people just tend to be that way more than others? Maybe. But gratitude can be learned. We can learn to react with gratitude. We can become aware of the little everyday things that happen that God blesses us with and through. And when we become aware, we can be like the, good, we can be like the Samaritan who turned around and spent time with Jesus expressing thanks. The Apostle Paul urges us to do this in First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances... For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, people who are truly thankful, who have an enduring attitude of gratitude, curiously are not always those who have the most. If you've traveled at all overseas and in some third world countries, you'll know that's true. That true, true gratitude is not the national byproduct of good fortune. That there are no direct correlations between health and wealth and a thankful heart. Instead, those who tend to be the most thankful are those who have determined to be the most thankful. Because gratitude is an attitude that we can adopt. It's a matter of the will. It's a muscle that we can be exercised to remain vital and effective. And the exercise that is essential to developing a muscular thankfulness is giving God his due. Because every single day, God does amazing things for us. He's placed us on this planet, a beautiful place to live, He's created us in His image. We have the ability to think and to create and, and, and to be in relationship with others, to be in relationship with Him, to be able to express and receive love, to be in community with family and friends. And we're blessed to live in this country. We have political and religious freedom. We have the opportunity to pursue our dreams and help our kids achieve theirs. The vast majority of the world does not have what we have. We have been spared much of what plagues the rest of the world famine, disease, war. Our standard of living is among the highest in the world. Our healthcare system, even with all its problems, provides some of the best medical care on the planet, and educational opportunities are the envy of the world. For whatever reason, we are blessed to live in a country which is unsurpassed in human history in its opportunities. Why is that? Is it because we're, you know, we're, we deserve it? We're smarter, better looking, harder working. Or is it because God has graciously placed us, for whatever reason, in such a place at such a time? where their own worthiness have nothing to do with it? You know, this time of year, Thanksgiving is set aside specifically to remember what God has done for us and to give Him thanks for that. And we receive a thankful heart and nurture a thankful heart as we remember what he's done for us in the past, which helps us see what he's doing for us in the present, which gives us hope, a confidence, for what he will do for us in the future. There's a story about a famous Bible scholar named Matthew Henry who was once attacked by thieves and robbed of his wallet and money. He wrote this about the incident in his diary. He wrote, let me be thankful. First, I was never robbed before. Second, although they took my wallet, they didn't take my life. Third, although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, let me be thankful because it was I who was robbed and not I who did the robbing. You know, I sometimes think we could help each other a lot by simply asking, what are you thankful for today? You know, I'm... It might help us to kind of be a good reminder, sort of an attitude adjustment from time to time. And, I, you know, I'd like to hear the answer, you know. And so I'm going to steal a ploy from Roman. Send me an email, okay? It doesn't have to be long. Let me know what you're thankful for. Share a testimony of God's goodness in your life where he's come through for you. My email is on the back of the worship guide, where Romans is as well. It would be an encouragement and a challenge to me. And I think it would strengthen the gratitude muscle in in all of us. might help us have perspective in the midst of daily life. Paul tells us, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for... The many gifts that you bless us with, and so many of them we're not even aware of, and so many we take for granted. We pause for a moment. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of friends and family. Uh, We thank you for the freedoms we have in this country. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you most especially for your son, Jesus. I just pray, Lord, that we would be known as the grateful ones. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.